Daniel chapter 4 this morning. I almost called it Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4 because Nebuchadnezzar is the primary voice in this chapter. We all know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their real names, by the way, were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And we all know the story about how Nebuchadnezzar built this huge gold idol that he basically made a decree, everyone will bow down or I will burn them in a fiery furnace. And we all have read the children's Bible version even, where they clean it up a little bit, but he's still, they're still getting burned alive, possibly. But why do we know that story? Why is that even in there? What does that have to do with God's ultimate rescue plan to rescue the whole earth from sin? Well, I will say that it is a story of faith under fire that's tested and found to be true. But I will also say that prophecy books don't just have a a near-reaching where God was speaking and sending warning shots to the people he was speaking to, warning them, hey, if you continue on this path, there's going to be judgment. But prophecy also has a far-reaching element, not just a foretelling of God's word to a specific people, but also a foretelling of things that will come in the future. And in Daniel, there are many of these, and we'll get more into them after chapter 6. But in chapter 3, we have this story of these three Jewish men that seem to stand out from the crowd, and they literally, they don't kneel. You know, think about that in the context of what we're dealing with politically. People are not, you know, they're kneeling during the national anthem. Now think, if you would, if they, you were not in a country where you were free to have those opinions, and you did not kneel when everyone else expected you to kneel. Freedom, right? Well, they didn't have freedom, but they observed this freedom by choosing to stand instead of kneel because their law said, you shall have no other gods before me. So they took a spiritual stance in a very practical way. But when they did this, it caused their lives to be threatened and even uh, taken from them. In a way, they were thrown into this fiery furnace And their lives were over, as far as they knew. They said, God is able to deliver us from this. He is able. But if not, we will still not worship your God. But if not. And I think we need to make sure we teach our children that God has made promises to us. And he's also given us the ability to make choices. And whether it's something where we get sick or we go through a trial and we know that God can change the situation and we pray about it, I think we need to start adding, but if not, to our prayers. God, I know you are able to heal my family. God, I know you are able to take this cancer from me. But if not, I will still trust you. That's faith. That's faith. Now, both of them take faith, but my point is in chapter 3, it's not just about the story about these three men taking a stance. King Nebuchadnezzar, if you will, is a type of what will come in the future in Revelation. It's already spoken about this man called the Antichrist, and he will set himself up as a political savior for the nation of Israel. He will make deals with them, he will get them on his side, and he'll do like what most politicians do. He'll provide a stance, and then when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, he's going to back out of that stance. He's going to give them the ability to build their temple back on the Temple Mount. Now, I've stood there. They're already preparing. They've already made all of the instruments that go in the the temple itself. They're ready. They're waiting. They could be making sacrifices within the hour if given the opportunity. So the Israelites will do anything they can to get back to making sacrifices because that is the only way that they have atonement to get right with God. 
because they don't have a sacrifice, a sacrificial system going right now, they really have to water down their religion in order to live it out. And so Nebuchadnezzar is a symbol of the Antichrist. We think of Antichrist, we think of someone who is against Christ, and no doubt he is that. But the word Antichrist actually means, literally, instead of. Instead of Christ. And we know many who are already following some Antichrists, some instead of Christ. They find their peace or their hope in something else or someone else. But Nebuchadnezzar is a type of or a symbol of the Antichrist. The fiery furnace represents the great tribulation that will be experienced during the the seven-year tribulation that is spoken of in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. And actually, this time of tribulation won't just be like more hurricanes than last year. You know, I've heard a lot of people say, man, look at all the hurricanes we're having. It'll be unheard of, the, the contrast between the tribulation we've experienced in the past and the great tribulation. It will be obvious to everyone this is not good. It's, it's the worst it's ever been, without a doubt. We won't have to check the farmer, farmer's almanac to see if it's slightly worse. It'll be way worse. Um, so the fiery, fiery furnace is a picture of the Great Tribulation. The three Hebrew men, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they represent 144,000 Jewish males that will be spoken of. So if the, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they say, hey, you know, we, you might be a part of the 144,000. Isn't it the Jehovah's Witness? They're going to say, well, you could be a part of the 144,000. Well, tell them to check their Bibles because the 144,000 read about in the book of Revelation are Jewish males. So ask them if they're Jewish. Like, you know, but during the tribulation period, this fiery furnace of trials... There will be 144,000 Jewish males, 12,000 from all of the 12 tribes, and they will be evangelists, essentially. They'll be sharing the gospel, and God will seal them and protect them from the fiery furnace like he did these three men in this furnace, spoken of in Revelation, chapter 7 through 9. Then the golden image, this huge image that Nebuchadnezzar has made of himself, kind of you know, prideful, he builds this image that's 90 feet tall of solid gold. I read an account the other day, and he said, basically, the amount of gold, if you were to go back past the inflation rate, it would be about three, I think it was three and a half billion dollars worth of gold. So the riches that were in this nation were not really comparable. I mean, he doesn't even... Even, but think about it this way. He has so much money just in that statue that he could pay off a huge amount of our debt. We'd still have some as a nation, but he could pay off a huge amount, right? So these riches have been put into this idol. And this idol represents the image of the Antichrist that will be set up in the Jewish temple. Remember I told you this Antichrist will be a political savior. He'll give them everything that they've been looking for. And then at just the right hour, he's going to set up an image of some sort of material to worship him, an idol, in the temple. And this is spoken of in Daniel, in Ezekiel, and in Revelation for sure the abomination that causes desolation or the abomination of desolation. So these are all pictures of what's going to take place in the future. Now, I commented at the end of my teaching last week that Daniel is mysteriously not in this story, which is odd because we're reading the book of Daniel, right? 
So why isn't Daniel in there? Well, there are some higher critics that say, well, Daniel obviously bowed down to the statue. But I just don't see that. It doesn't line up with his character. It doesn't line up with these three men that were actually trained and discipled by Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. So where do we think Daniel was? Well, I believe that Daniel is actually a picture of the church, us. The ones who are not delivered through the tribulation, but who are raptured, according to my eschatological view, I can't even say that word, my view of the end times, I believe that God tells us we are not appointed to wrath or judgment, but he's actually going to rapture or catch us up in the air and take us out before the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. So all of that to say, it's not just a story about Daniel. It's not just a story about these three men. It's not even a story about Nebuchadnezzar, just it's also a story about what's going to take place in the future. God has all of these concealed truths that are in the Old Testament, but in Jesus Christ, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, he reveals all of these truths and makes them plain to us. And so that said, that's a well-known story. I think most of us would say, I've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I heard of them before I ever read the Bible. There's a Beastie Boys song where they reference Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's like part of one of their riffs. So I was, I was, when I started reading the Bible, I was like, whoa, the Beastie Boys were talking about Jesus. Well, they weren't. I don't even know why it was in the song. I guess probably because it rhymed. Um, but either way, in this story, in chapter 4 today, we have a passage that is not as well-known, but I, I'm of the opinion it should be more well-known because it's the story of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion to Christianity or to at least fearing God and following him by faith. And so here we are in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Now, I read this, and it makes me think of many of Paul's epistles where he states, uh, Paul, an apostle of God, according to the will of God, or whatever he says. And then he says, to the people at Galatia, or to the Romans, or to whoever his audience is. And then he says, peace be multiplied to you, shalom. Interesting, because he's a pagan king. So Paul would write, grace and peace. He writes, peace be multiplied to you. This is interesting because if you read any of the chapters we've read so far in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is not a peaceful man. As a matter of fact, if you cross him, he keeps saying this phrase of, I will rip you limb from limb and I will make your house a dunghill. I will burn it to the ground. So we come to that point and we see all of a sudden King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, peace be multiplied to you. He says, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. He's giving testimony. You ever heard someone, a Christian, share their testimony? This is how good God has been to me, and I want to recount that story so that others will know of his faithfulness. He says, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is important because Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled, and he's saying, his kingdom, God's kingdom, is everlasting. 
Now, if you remember the vision from chapter 2, he's built this statue, and in the vision, this statue has a head of gold that represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But then in chapter 3, he builds a statue and says, my kingdom's not going to be short-lived. It's not just the head, it's the whole body. My kingdom's going to last forever. But here, he says, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. It goes past the people living in it. It continues on. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 4, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. He was flourishing. He was doing well. Everything that he put his hand to, it was producing something that was useful. He says, I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head, they troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. I also find this interesting. He's done this same way to try to figure out an issue before. Did it work? No. He brought in all these people. None of them could tell him the dream or the interpretation. But this time he sends it out. And in verse 8, he says, But at last... Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my little g, God. In him is the spirit of the big G, holy God. In him is the spirit of God. And I told the dream before him, saying... So this time, instead of saying, I don't know the dream, you need to tell me what it was and then interpret it for me, he tells Daniel up front, here's my dream. And apparently he's so shaken by it, he's troubled. Deeply within him, there's trembling. Now think about this. He is the biggest sovereign king of the biggest sovereign kingdom at this point. What he says goes, and he's afraid by this dream. You guys ever have a bad dream? I have them. Yeah, I mean, it's just a reality. We wake up in the middle of the night, and this thing that we've been thinking about, and sometimes it's a bad burrito, and sometimes it's like, I hope that never happens. It's a deep embedded fear that we have within us. And King Nebuchadnezzar has this fear. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, verse 9, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and that no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Daniel is known for being a man filled with the Spirit of God. He's also a man who is known to be able to reveal hidden things. Daniel is able to do this because his God is that way. Verse 10, these were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. This is interesting because Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And if you read with, at, at, at your leisure this week, go back to Genesis chapter 11, and you'll see the story of a kingdom called Babylon. And it was led by a man by the name of, it's hilarious, Nimrod. <laughs> but he starts this kingdom. And it's the same kingdom, I would even insert. And he builds this huge building. This is right after the flood. And when they build the building, they build it with brick and mortar and pitch. So that if the world ever floods again, 
God's not going to shut our system down. We're going to be just fine. And they built it up to the heavens because man is always trying to get to heaven on his own. Think about the song, Stairway to Heaven. That's not a song that's anything other than it points to what someone was desiring to do. He's climbing the stairway to heaven. I cannot tell you how many times. See, we don't say stairway to heaven anymore. Every time someone dies, I watch on Facebook and someone says, fly high. Well, that's their only hope if they didn't know Christ, to fly high. The assumption is we'll go to be, we'll be an angel ourselves and get to God. But that's man's way. God's way is through the bridge of Jesus Christ. We don't have to climb. We have to bow. We have to humble ourselves. So he says, I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew, became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely. Its fruit was abundant and in it was food for all. Interesting because it's a kingdom that feeds many. It's a kingdom that is not just a tree with no meaning. It produces fruit. And then he says, the beasts of the field found of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So this kingdom is a source of life to all that come into contact with it. He says, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said this. Now this holy one he's speaking of is an angel. It's some sort of uh, angel from the angels, the armies of God. And he shows up and he says, he has a message. He says, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. This is important because this is the grace note. We see all this message of judgment. We see this tree getting cut down, its fruit being scattered, its leaves stripped from its branches. And yet what he says, when you cut it down around the stump, I want you to wrap, what does he say? Iron and bronze. He says, leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. If you would cut down a tree and put this particular device around the base of the tree, it was in hopes that the tree could grow back. Because when you cut down a tree, many times it'll split and then it kind of, it lets everything in and it dries out. Now, when I cut down a tree, whether I put a band around it or not, it dies. I cut down a tree the year we moved down here, and my wife was like, good grief, I thought you were going to leave a little bit. But there's a power line right above it. You know, it didn't really need to grow back. But in this particular message, it seems that there's a desire for this kingdom to be torn down, but not utterly destroyed, with a future and a hope. A desire for this kingdom to once again be restored. Anytime God wants to do a work in your life, he has to tear you down before he can build you back up properly. I know this, I know this, I know this. Because many times 
God has wanted to use me for something in the future, but before he could ever use me, he had to break me. He had to humble me. You know this if you've ever been around horses. Horses are prideful. They're strong and they know it. But you have to break them in order to be able to ride them because otherwise they'll destroy you. But if you break them, they can become very useful tools in the hand of the one riding it and guiding it. And we are the same way. We are strong in and of ourselves until God would break us. And he breaks us because he loves us. And so we come to this point in the story, and he says, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts. All of a sudden, it's no longer a tree, but it's a person. He says, let it be wet with the dew of the heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the earth, on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man and let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over, sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. So we have this vision and I believe the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. It's a, a vision given directly to him. And we'll see that in verse 22. But verse 17 points out the point of this dream. The point of this dream is that God Most High rules supreme in the world. You've ever seen the picture that says, uh, no matter who is president, God is king. Jesus is king. And that's been true for, from the beginning of time. God has been the sovereign ruler of this world that we live in, this galaxy, uh, the other galaxies. He's over all of them. No matter what happens that seems to dethrone God, he is always the king. And he's trying to show this to Nebuchadnezzar, who is one of the kings on earth. He's trying to show him that you're under my authority. And if you do not surrender to my authority... I will make you bow. And so in verse uh, 19 through 27, Daniel is going to interpret the dream. But I want you to know about prophets. Prophets are people who hear from God and they have a message for someone else. They have a message that, for someone that God is sending them to. And many times prophets get a bad rap. I was watching this uh, video that we watched with Lucy. It's called... Uh, What's in the Bible with Buck Denver? And what's in the Bible with Buck Denver is made by a group that also made VeggieTales. Many of you know about VeggieTales. Uh, but basically, he started this new thing, and he does what's in the Bible. And he goes through all of the books of the Old and the New Testament, and he explains them, and he teaches very simple, basic things. But I watch them with her because I always benefit in some way. God's Word doesn't return void. Whether it's in a cartoon or whether it's in a Bible study, it doesn't return void. 
Well, one of the things that, he, that these guys were saying about the prophets is that they were always hated. God would use them to speak words of comfort. And those words of comfort didn't mean they were words to like, make them feel all ooey-gooey and warm and fuzzy. They were words of warning. We warn our children not to run across the street because we love them. God warns his people not to sin against him because it will hurt them. And in the nation of Israel, over and over again, there were prophets. Well, Daniel's a prophet to this pagan nation. God gives this man a dream. He's going to give the interpretation. But what I want to point out, and we're going to see, is that Daniel is not excited to tell this word of warning to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's troubled. He's scared. Nebuchadnezzar burns people alive. And, and these kingdoms are no joke. And so he is nervous about telling him the interpretation. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Easy for him to say, right? Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. I pray that this dream is actually about those people that are against you and not you, because it's not a positive thing. I find that interesting because one of the first prophets, Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, was given a message for his, his boss or his dad in the faith. Eli was a priest in the tabernacle in the days of the tabernacle before Solomon built the temple. And if you remember with me in 1 Samuel, there was a woman who was not able to conceive. And so the Lord, after much grief and sorrow and prayer, gave her a son, and she named him Samuel. But she promised that if God would give her a son, he would get, she would give this son to work in the tabernacle in the ministry, basically giving him up from the point that he's weaned. And so he goes and he stays in the temple. There's a man by the name of Eli, and Eli has two sons, I think, that were wicked, so wicked that they were, when people would come and bring meat to the tabernacle, they'd like grab it out of their pot and they would break all the rules about offerings. And they were actually sleeping with ladies, it seems, on the temple steps. It was very foul. And so Samuel is a prophet and he's a young man and he doesn't know yet that God's given him the gift of prophecy. And he speaks to him in a dream and he says, Samuel, and uh, Samuel wakes up and he goes, yes, uh, yes, master. And he goes to Eli and he says, what do you want? And Eli's like, I didn't say anything. I was sleeping. Go back to bed. And so he comes back, he goes to bed, and then he gets woken up again. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel gets up and says, yeah, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And he goes, but he, he's going to Eli. He's not speaking to the Lord. He's speaking to his earthly master. And this happens several times. And finally, Eli realizes that God is speaking to Samuel. He says, okay, don't come to me. I'm sleeping. Stay in your bed. And when you hear that voice, respond, the Lord is speaking to you. And say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so he lays there and he, he says, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And, and the Lord gives this message to Samuel about Eli. Eli is about to be judged because he is supposed to be the, the God-fearer of the land that leads the people in righteousness and he's not disciplining his own children. And because of that, it's causing the children of God 
to blaspheme the Lord because of their wickedness. They come. Imagine if you came to church and the first thing that we did is we said, "Give me the money," and you're like, "I'm not going to church there anymore," you know. And but they didn't have like a church down the street to go to. What they had was the tabernacle. That was it. And all of Israel, one place, one way to worship. And so these people were like, well, I'm not going to go worship then. So God's name was not glorified in the nation. And if visitors would come, he would be blasphemed. And so he gives them this message of judgment to Samuel. And Samuel is next morning at breakfast or whatever. Eli goes, well, what did the Lord have to say to you? He goes, um, and of course, Eli goes, well, don't withhold it from me. If you withhold it from me, you're doing wrong. All of a sudden, he has a sense of right and wrong. And he says, why don't you tell me what God has told you? It's okay. So he tells him the message, but he's hesitant. And what I want to say is that Samuel and Daniel is the same way. They have compassion. They're not just out to blast somebody and say, God's going to judge you, you, you know, whatever. They're, they're going, look, God's giving me a message for you, and I'm nervous to give it to you because it's, it's hard. But I love you enough to tell you. I care. I cannot tell you how many times God has given me a word for somebody that's had an issue, and I've gone to them with fear and trembling, whether they thought I did or not, and they hate me. But why should I be any different than all the prophets? God gives you a message, and it's a message of warning. We live in a culture where you can't warn anybody. Don't we? How many of us are good at receiving correction? I'm not. But if we're going to be God followers, God fearers, we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to be willing to receive correction. God does correct us because he loves us. And if he doesn't correct you, Hebrews says, you're probably not his kid. God disciplines every son and daughter whom he receives. That's what it says. We have to be willing to receive your correction. Otherwise, we will never grow. We will never get closer to God will divide ourselves from God from not receiving correction and continuing in sin. And so all of that said back in Daniel. Daniel's interpreting the dream. He's shaken by it. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, verse um, 19, May the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. We get it. It's the tree. Okay, we'll move on. He says, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. You're the tree. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. 
They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. God is telling this, this, this prophecy of, I'm going to humble you, Nebuchadnezzar. This kingdom I've given you, I'm going to strip it from you. I'm going to take it. I'm going to kill it. And so it's a word of warning. It's, God is the inventor of warning shots. You ever watch war movies? They shoot up a warning shot to say, hey, we're here and we are aiming. We have these guns ready to fire your way. You have the opportunity now to surrender or there will be a fight. And God's telling Nebuchadnezzar, you can humble yourself now with this word of warning or it will not go well for you. And he gives them great, clear description of what his consequences will be. Verse 26, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Perhaps God will stay his hand of judgment. Perhaps. This is a message for our nation. We have the opportunity and God's warning over and over and over again that we would repent and live in righteousness. And that message is not a message to people that do not know God. That is a message to us. That is a message to us who have had God's word revealed to us specifically. And I don't know about you, but the things that are going on should cause us to go, hey, am I living right? But what he says here is a message of grace. He says, you have the opportunity to repent. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, remember, he's been giving a message of warning. Have you ever been warned by, about something? And then time goes on and you kind of forget about the warning. You're like, you know, ah, maybe there was nothing to that. I remember God spoke to me and I remember his word was pretty clear. But, you know, time passes and we forget. We're forgetful, right? It says here that 12 months he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Nothing's really came of this message of judgment. So he's starting to think, eh, it was all bark and no bite. That Daniel, bad burrito for him that night. You know, he doesn't know what I'm talking about. And he comes around, and in verse 30, the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? He's ascribing glory to himself again. God's warned him. Twelve months have passed. He's forgotten about this tree prophecy. And he goes back to his ways. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my majesty, my mighty power, and the honor of my majesty? Now, I was reading this this week and I wanted some application for myself. How many times do I have the opportunity to ascribe glory to myself or to God. This can be in anything, by the way. It doesn't have to be a mighty kingdom. I don't know too many of us that got, you know, $3 billion worth of gold where we built a big idol. I mean, that's obvious he's wrong. But in our case, 
How many times does God give us the opportunity to ascribe to him the glory and the honor and extol his name for all that he's done in our lives? In the simple things and in the big things. What about the story about how you got your job? What about the story about how you got the place that you live in? Or your kids and how well they're doing or how well, not well they're doing? You know, what about the story of your salvation? You know, how did you come to know the Lord? Well, I started going to church and I've been going ever since. How is that about God? That's about me. Or can you tell those stories with the proper perspective of, I wasn't worth it. I lived horrendously. I didn't deserve it, but God pursued me relentlessly through people, through his word, and through situations. And by his grace, here I am. That's my story. Ten years later, here I am. I can't explain it. I can't give you a system. All I know is that God loved me so much that he continued to send people to me even when I rejected person after person after person. And then he sent someone that I finally was like, okay, Lord, you're right. And he let me be crazy for a certain season where I was like this prophecy. I was with the beasts of the field. Cannot tell you how many times I woke up in somebody's yard when I was at college, just throwing up my guts. And, you know, I, I'm like, okay, Lord, I get it. I, I am a harm to myself. Now what? What do you want to do? Get me out of college. Give me a spot where I can pursue you. And I did that. I prayed that prayer. And he, I was faithless. I went back to my old habits as soon as I moved back to my hometown. But God pursued me. He sent people to work with me. He sent people that cared about me. He sent people he knew I would listen to. He brought old friends back in that had been praying for me. It's all about him. Because even if I ascribed any glory to those people, they would look at me and say, no, that was the Lord. I, you kind of drove me nuts or, you know, whatever. I was just there. You know, they were faithful friends and they were loving and very gracious and patient with me, but it was all him. It says, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you. Now, there's different words for different times. I believe that this was seven years. I believe that because it says here, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, and it seems to me he went crazy. The Lord took away his sanity, and he ate grass like oxen. He went on all fours. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers. Now, I'm a guy, and I can't do that in less than seven years. I can't do that in seven years, probably. So I'm saying it's probably seven years. He had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. So he became an animal. He lost his sanity. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And at that point, my understanding returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Does God ever give you over 
to your fears? Does God ever give you over to the things that you worship instead of Him? He does me sometimes. And at those moments, I get overwhelmed by circumstances, by relationships, by problems, by things i got to fix. I, it, they overrun me. And God goes, you want to do it on your own? Go ahead. And usually at the end of that, when the smoke clears and I'm overwhelmed and nothing's fixed, I look up. And that's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven, and that's when his understanding returned to him. Understanding is given by God. He says, my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's not responsible to anybody. At the same time, he says, my, re- my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me, my counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and an excellent majesty was added to me. Imagine, if you will, if our president went inc- incredibly insane and they had to put him like in some sort of grazing area with sheep or oxen and he went on all fours for seven years and started eating grass he might lose the confidence of the people maybe right but look at this at the time that he looked up to heaven and worshiped god and said no you're in charge you're right i'm not the king of my own kingdom you have given me this kingdom at that point the lord restored to him His reason, his reign, his reputation. Do you know how long it would take to regain a reputation? That could only be God. The guy's been eating grass for seven years. He looks like something off of one of those movies, you know, Jeremiah Johnson. His hair's long, his fingernails have grown out. He's woolly. They restore his rapport, his rhetoric, and on top of that, he's redeemed been bought back from the slavery of himself. His sin separated him from God. God set his mind right. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Those words, praise, extol, and honor, are not the idea of I did it once. The verbiage there seems to include that he continually praised. He continually extolled. He continually honored the king of heaven and all of, those, all of whose works are truth and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He can put them down. Nebuchadnezzar learned more in his state of humiliation about God than he ever did when everything was just right. How many times do we pray that God would just keep Keep our lives just the way that we're comfortable. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar, this king, really over nations, learned way more about God in his state of being humbled. And the word humble is also the same word we use for humiliation. I don't like to be humiliated, but I do want to grow closer to God. And sometimes those have to go hand in hand. 
Nebuchadnezzar is put in his place, he's brought low, and he finally has proper perspective about his position in God's world rather than God's position in his world. How many of us try to put God in the position where we think he should be and center our lives around other things when really God needs to be the center? He needs to be the ruler. He needs to be over all. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We lose this because in our nation, and this isn't a bad thing necessarily, we don't have a king. You didn't question a king. You didn't tell him what to do. You didn't vote him out. Now, there were times where people killed them so they'd get a new king. But a king is a sovereign. A king is someone who says and it happens, whether people like it or not. Jesus is the king of righteousness, the king of Salem. He's the He's the good king. Jesus is the king who came and died for his subjects. No, no king has ever done that. So, all of that said, Nebuchadnezzar gives testimony that God is bigger than him, that God is gracious, and that God restores. But we have to first come to him in humility. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this story. Thank you for this historical record of one of the biggest kingdoms and its sovereign leader who was able to be brought low and humbled and brought to a place of redemption. He was made right with you by faith. He was humbled and he cried out for mercy and you gave it. How much more can we how, how much more can we come to your throne of grace and ask for grace in a time of need? How much more can you humble us and bring us to a place of total surrender? We don't have nearly as much to give up as Nebuchadnezzar did. Father, would you humble us? Would you cause us to see you for the majesty and the glory and the honor that you are due? Would you cause us to bow our knees? Lord, give us hearts willing to surrender to your plans over our own. When you warn us, like you did Nebuchadnezzar, may that warning just be just as bright. There's a shelf life on warnings where I believe we let time go and we forget that we've been warned. Father, help us as Christians not to miss the warnings, not to procrastinate, and Father, help us to repent of the things that you're trying to remove from us that really are hindering us in our relationship with you. I don't know anybody in here that doesn't want to grow closer to you. But are we willing to do what it takes to grow closer to you? Are we willing to have you um, warn us and us receive that correction? Father, would you give us hearts that are willing to learn, willing to receive correction, and Father, would you give us lives that bear fruit to your glory and not our own. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this word from Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, write it on the tablets of our hearts. May we receive it as for us. In Jesus' name, amen.